Oh, thanks, church. You're gracious, and thanks, Pastor Todd, as well. Um, very excited about the, what the Lord has in store for us in the coming uh, months and years. Amen? Amen. It's great to be with you, uh, whether you're here in the room or whether you are tuning in online. Uh, God's got some stuff to say f- to us from His Word. And so let's get right to it. And uh, I was thinking this week that we all have a lot of experience with crisis, don't we? We all know what it's like to have something come into our lives that disrupts the course of the life that we're on, that, that changes the pattern of the life that we had established. I mean, COVID aside, because that's like the biggest one for all of us right now, we have things like family trauma, like health issues, like financial disruptions, like relational discord, loss, pain. We know crisis all too well, don't we? Many of us know it even coming into the room or tuning in this morning. But of course, the comfort for us in the midst of the crises of our lives is that we have a Lord and Savior who is all too familiar with the crises that we experience. Our Savior Jesus Christ is described in Isaiah chapter 53 as a man who was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. This morning we begin a brand new series called The Crises of the Christ. The inspiration for which comes from a book of the same title written by English preacher G. Campbell Morgan. And the idea of the book is that the introduction of Jesus the Christ, the sent one, the Messiah of God, was the climactic stage in God's process and plan for this world. The entrance of Christ into this world is the lens by which we can view all of history from creation to Christ's coming, from his ascension to where we are now, to everything that is to come with as much as it is unknown to us. Over the next seven messages, including Good Friday and Easter Sunday, we will look at seven crises that occurred in the life of Jesus Christ, which changed the course of history and established a new order in the plan that God is writing. And our hope and prayer is that this time, as we look in depth into the life of Christ, will stir up in you a new sense of wonder, a greater appreciation, a greater love and wonder at the work of Christ. And we begin this morning with this first crisis, which is the purpose of the Christ. We'll be utilizing the entirety of Scripture in this series to uh, develop a fully informed understanding of who Jesus is and what he did. But if you're looking for a place to land in your Bibles this morning, you can go ahead and open up to Hebrews chapter 7, which is where we will be in just a little bit. But this first crisis, the crisis of Christ's purpose, was that he alone could rescue us from our desperate, distanced state in our sinfulness. As the one that God used to bring about the way of salvation, Jesus Christ filled and fulfilled three distinct roles, which we will look at in depth here this morning. Because the reality is the life of a Christian is one that is impacted and influenced in every way by the person and work of Jesus. Not just in the forgiveness that we receive from him, not just in the joy and the hope that we get of the promise of new life uh, through his resurrection, but we as followers of his 
are also influenced and impacted by his purpose and the work of his ministry. And so we could say this, that as a Christian, I share in the purpose for which Christ came. And the first role that we saw, or that we see that Jesus Christ came as, is as a prophet in which he proclaimed truth to the lost. Now, the role of prophet, as we understand it in the Old Testament, was someone that God used to reveal himself and to declare his will and his word to his people. Now, we often think of prophets, and when we hear the word prophecy, as the the foretelling of future events or the predicting of things that are yet to come. But in reality, the role of prophet is so much more than just that. As we understand that the role of prophet or to declare prophecy is certainly uh, an aspect of it is the foretelling of future events, but it is also the foretelling of truth. Or in perhaps more simpler terms for us, it is the preaching or declaring of the truth of God's word. So we could say that what Pastor Todd does here every Sunday as he stands up and opens up God's word for us is prophecy in that it is the foretelling of the truth of the word of God. Now, Moses was one of the first major examples of this kind of prophecy that we see in Scripture. And in Deuteronomy chapter 18, he tells the Israelites, as they're making their way into the promised land, that God was going to send for them a line of prophets who would speak on his behalf. It's Moses who says these words in Deuteronomy 18, 15, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers, and it is to him that you shall listen. Of course, we could go all throughout the Old Testament and look at all different kinds of examples of the prophets that we saw, men like Isaiah and Jeremiah, Elijah and David. But in order for us to fully understand this role of prophet, we've got to go all the way back to the very beginning. Because in the Garden of Eden, in the perfectness of God's creation as he intended it, there was no need for a prophet. Adam and Eve, we read in Genesis 3, walked with God and experienced with him unhindered communication, very much in the same way that you and I can communicate this morning, save for the masks and distancing, of course, right? But when Adam and Eve decided to listen to the lies of the evil one, when they decided to act independently of God, not going to him to confirm what it is that they had heard or to test the validity of what the serpent told to them, they distanced themselves from God in sin. They broke the order that God had set in creation and the opportunity for those made in the image of God to experience that kind of unhindered communication with him and thus the need for someone to speak on God's behalf arose. Thus, the need for someone to come to proclaim the truth in the midst of the lies of our own sinfulness and the brokenness of this world arose. Which is, of course, why we see God speak through the prophets in the Old Testament. But as Moses declared the coming of a line of prophets in Deuteronomy 18, he was also prophesying of the coming of a future prophet. Who authors in the New Testament, specifically as we see in Acts chapter 3, identify using the words of Moses in Deuteronomy 18:15 as Jesus Christ himself. The preacher that 
preached the sermon that is the book of Hebrews, said it this way, that long ago at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. And here we see the ultimate fulfillment of the office and the role of prophet and the distinction, the difference between Jesus and the prophets of old. Because not only did Jesus declare the word of God, the truth of the good news of the kingdom of God, but Jesus Christ was the perfect human embodiment of the word of God. All that he said and did was the word and the will of God, which is why the apostle John in his gospel calls Jesus, John 1.1, the word. The word who was with God and the word who is God. The word who, John 1.14, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, John said. Glory as of the only son from the father. Here it is, full of grace and truth. See, the prophets of old were but a shadow of things that would come in Jesus. To give us a more contemporary example, the prophets of old were like the virtual tour of prophet. You know what I'm talking about, right? Remember back in like a couple months ago when we couldn't do anything or go anywhere and all these like famous places put out virtual tours of museums or zoos or all that kind of stuff, right? Prophets of old were like the virtual tour of prophet. They were still a real thing, don't get me wrong. It's still a real thing for you to be able to ride the Leviathan at Canada's Wonderland through your computer screen. Don't tell me it's not real because that's the only, that's the closest I'm ever going to get to riding that ridiculous thing. Still makes my stomach turn even as I watch it through my phone screen. But while it's a real representation and it looks the same, it's entirely different. And they strap you into that seat and you're climbing the hill to that first drop, and then you're hurtling down to earth at breakneck speeds at almost a 90-degree drop, and they literally have to dig into the earth because you're, dry, you're, you're flying so fast. Or so I've been told, anyway. See, in Jesus, the role of prophet was perfectly and completely fulfilled. He is far greater than the prophets who came before him as all that he said and did and was, was the true word and will of God. Which is exactly what he declares to Philip in John chapter 14, verse 9. When he was asked to show them the Father, Jesus responds to him, Have I been with you so long and you still don't know me, Philip? Bro, have I been here for so long and have you seen everything that I've done? You still don't know who I am? Jesus says it. Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. And the majority of times that Jesus talked about his purpose for which he came to this earth, he says that it was to preach the good news. That it was this kind of forth telling of truth that we have been talking about here this morning. At the very beginning of his ministry, after his baptism and temptation, Jesus comes back to Nazareth, his hometown, and goes to teach in the synagogue in which he quotes Isaiah 61, speaking of himself, saying, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Just a few verses later, in verse 43, he says, But 
But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. Jesus came to preach the message of God to all people. And his message was himself. He wasn't just the messenger. Jesus was the message. He was the one that the prophecies of old were all about. That which Moses and Samuel and Daniel and Isaiah and David and Hosea and Micah and Zechariah and Malachi all looked to when they spoke from God. He is the one who revealed God to us. And as those who have received him, profess faith in him, or united with him in his death and resurrection, we are tasked with continuing that work in declaring the truth of Jesus Christ in the world that we live in today. We share in Christ's purpose in that. As God gave his word to his prophets in the Old Testament, so he leaves the transforming message of the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ to you and I, Christians, little Christs, to proclaim it in this world as we share in this purpose for which Christ came. The call that we're familiar with in Matthew 28, 19, and 20 that Jesus left to his disciples has been left to us as well. Go, Jesus says. Go, go out into the world and make disciples, call people to commitment in me of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, instructing them in my ways, Jesus says. is a prophetic task that we have been called to. To go forth and bring the truth of the gospel, one that we are equipped to carry out, as Jesus says, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Some have said, well, Jesus gave that to the apostles. That's not for us. Well, that command that Jesus gave to them, the apostles passed on to those they taught as well, as Paul did to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2 verse 2. What you have heard from me, Paul says, in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men, Timothy. Give it to others. We'll be able to teach others also. And this truth, this command... This purpose has been passed down from generation to generation to generation until we stand here this morning with the same call. So my question for you this morning is whose truth is your life proclaiming? Whose truth is your life proclaiming? This time of year, of course, Jesus gets a lot of publicity. We've seen it in the press over the last two weeks. I don't know if you've noticed it. Articles coming up about the origins of Christianity or the the resurfacing of historical works on the person and work of Jesus. Of course, all in anticipation of the high holiday of Christianity, which is Easter. It's part of why we decided to pursue this series at this time. 
is we understand that while we take the necessary time to reflect and to appreciate what Jesus Christ accomplished for us on the cross and in the empty tomb on Good Friday and Easter Sunday, this is a truth that we carry with us every single day. The heart attitude of our lives ought to be the same as what Peter and John said in Acts 4.20. We cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. I so appreciate what Shayla Visser had to say in our last leadership series session. She is the national director of Alpha in Canada. Any of you who are familiar with Alpha would know that they really are on the cutting edge of, of evangelism and the proclaiming of truth, and they do it so well. But she said when it comes to this idea of evangelism or the proclaiming of truth to others that being evangelistically great is not the goal. Being evangelistically available and fruitful is the goal. How often do I shrink back from proclaiming truth to those whom I have the opportunity to How often do I shy away from inviting someone to come and hear the truth proclaimed by someone else because I've given in to the lie that our culture spins that nobody wants to hear about this? That there is really no harvest out there. Instead of that firing me up to go out and give people a chance to hear about it or trusting the fact that God has said there is a harvest out there and he's looking for people to go out and to reap it, I shrink back in fear or don't do anything at all because I'm concerned with the result. When in reality, the fact that God moves and works in his word frees us to not be responsible for the result. The Lord works in the proclamation of truth. My responsibility is to proclaim it faithfully and leave it with God. Those who share in the purpose for which Christ came, we are called to proclaim the truth. And see this next. Christ came as a priest, and so I ought to offer myself as a sacrifice. I told you to turn to Hebrews chapter 7. We're going to spend some time there now. It's in the book of Hebrews that we find the most comprehensive understanding of Jesus' priesthood, and where we see the parallel between the priests and the sacrificial system of the Old Testament and that of Jesus, our great high priest, drawn out. Look, at, uh, look with me to verse 23. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, Innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, promise of God to us, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. 
You see, the sacrificial system that God had appointed for the Israelites uh, appointed priests who would offer sacrifices and prayers on behalf of the people regularly and at special appointed times throughout the year. And this sacrificial system came to a head every year on the Day of Atonement when the high priest would make his way into the Holy of Holies, the innermost part of the temple, into the very presence of God to make a sacrifice on behalf of the sins of the people in order for them to be forgiven, atoned for. And the priests were responsible for bringing man to God as they were man's representatives interceding or or intervening on their behalf before the Father through the sacrifices and prayers that they offered. And this system was set up as a means by which God's wrath on sin would be appeased and forgiveness could be made for the sins that the people committed. But just like the prophets, it was a shadow of things to come. As the priests were many in number because they were unable to continue serving after they died. But when Jesus came, that priesthood was perfectly fulfilled. He, unlike men, is eternal, meaning that he serves as our high priest forever always interceding for us on our behalf, as he is the one who is holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He doesn't have to offer a sacrifice for himself before he offers the sacrifices for the other people, as the priests of old did, since he accomplished all that was required by God for us once for all. For any who would come near to God through him. Of course, we can't talk about this idea of Jesus as our priest without referencing Hebrews 4.15, which says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Jesus Christ is our high priest who knows our weaknesses better than we can know them ourselves. He's one who has experienced all that we could ever, who knows intimately the plight of our lives and knows what we need before we do. And so as he sits at the right hand of the throne of God, as we heard from Romans 8.34 last week, he makes prayers on our behalf and knows exactly what to pray for us. I consider Jesus like the holy and perfect autocorrect. And anybody knows that autocorrect is a wonderful thing for those of us with fat fingers, right? Who hit every wrong button when they're trying to send a text to somebody. Autocorrect steps right in there for me and gives me the word that I meant to say, but obviously did a terrible job at typing. You're nodding with me, you know exactly what I'm talking about. But there's sometimes, sometimes, when autocorrect doesn't work, right? And boy, does that get awkward when you send the wrong word to somebody else. Jesus takes the jumbled mess of our lives and our prayers He auto-corrects them into exactly what we need as our high priestly representative. He makes petitions and requests on our behalf to the Father, sympathetic toward us, 
as he understands what we experience. And you see, only Jesus could fulfill this role. Turn a page over with me to Hebrews chapter 9, which is where we see this so perfectly pointed out. Chapter 9, verse 12. We see that he entered once for all into the holy places. Not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Jesus went into that most holy place, into the very presence of God, and by his blood, his own perfect, sinless, unstained blood, paid the price that we couldn't. Verse 13. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer. Anybody else thankful we don't have to do that anymore? If all that sanctifies for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who though who through the eternal spirit offered, offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? And this is the simplicity of the gospel right here. It's Christ in my place. This is why we don't have priests at this church. Because we don't require them. We don't require an intermediary between us and God or between us and Jesus who then goes to God. Peter says it clearly in 1 Peter 2 verse 9. We are a royal priesthood. We are priests in that through Jesus Christ, our great high priest, we have access to the Father. Christ offered himself and we who put our faith in him are justified, made righteous in the sight of God by the blood of Jesus Christ. We then must continually offer ourselves to God as a sacrifice as we live in the process of purifying ourselves from the sinful dead works that we once walked in, walk in his ways and to serve him as Jesus did. If I am to offer myself as a sacrifice in the spirit of what Christ did for me, I jotted down a few things that you might consider as we think about this idea of living as a sacrifice. Will I sacrifice my time? Will I be willing to give up that evening or that extra evening or that Saturday? Or am I willing to drop everything for the work and service of Christ? Will I sacrifice my time? Will I sacrifice my money? You had to know this one was coming. Jesus talks very clearly about it. You can't serve two masters. It's Jesus or money. So which one is it for you? Will I sacrifice my gifts? Someone said to me this week, I love this. The gifts and abilities that I have are less to do with me than they are to do with God. So there's no sense in me getting upset about what I do or don't have or do or don't get. Do I recognize that the gifts and the abilities that I have been given are just that, a gift from God? And am I willing to sacrifice them to God to be used by him in whatever way he sees fit? 
And on that line of thinking, will I sacrifice my future? Whether that means I get married or not. School I decide to go to. We'll have kids or not. Or am I going to work? What will my retirement look like? What ministry am I being called to? Will I sacrifice my security? You name it. Are you willing to sacrifice it for the sake of Christ? How about this last one? Will I sacrifice my comfort? Given the rise in, notice the word I choose to use here, in opposition that we face as followers of Jesus Christ in this country, this is a big one for us. Because there's not a whole lot that's comfortable about what Jesus says in Matthew 5.10. Blessed are those who suffer for righteousness' sake. Be it my righteousness, be it the righteousness of someone else. But what he says next sounds pretty good. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The bottom line here is, are you willing to lay it on the line for Jesus? Are you willing to lay yourself on the line for the purpose that Christ has ordained in your life? Does the weight of his sacrifice on your behalf and his active work in interceding for you motivate you to offer up yourself to him in whatever he's calling you to? Or are you getting in the way of what he wants to do in your life by reigning on the throne or by allowing someone or something else to reign on the throne of your heart? Reality is, Jesus has the throne. It was given to him by God himself. So will you share then in this final purpose for which he came, as he came as a king, exercising God-given authority? And as it was for the first two roles that we looked at this morning, so it is for the third, in that the purpose, the purpose for which Christ came and the purpose that he fulfilled was the kingship of God's people. As we saw it in the Old Testament. The story goes in 1 Samuel 8 that God was reluctant to give his people a king. He was their king. But he relented and allowed it and established a king over Israel to represent him to the people. But you see, the kingdom that Jesus came to establish was entirely different. Throughout his time on this earth, Jesus denied and refused to be made into an earthly king with military or political power. As he told Pontius Pilate in John 18, 36, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom was of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not of this world. Jesus was and is the king of the people of God. The cross was the inauguration. His resurrection, the final step required for him to receive the greater authority over the church and the universe that God bestowed upon him, as Paul says in Ephesians 1, 20 to 22, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things 
the church. Jesus reigns as king, now and forevermore. With the authority given to him by the Father as a result of his accomplished purpose on this earth. He is supreme ruler and we are his subjects. Called to serve him. And as those called to serve the purposes of the Christ, we have been given the authority to steward the gospel and to lead the church as Christ would have it. As Jesus said to Peter in Matthew 16, verse 19, I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. See, the work that we are called and given the authority to do is the work of continuing the growth of the kingdom of God in this world. To share the gospel and to do the ministry of the church of Christ. We have been given the authority to be gatekeepers of the gospel by which people can come through into saving knowledge and faith of Jesus Christ. It's why one of our pillars here as a church is proclaiming the authority of God's word without apology. Binding or restricting, loosing or freeing those to the gospel of Jesus as we know that the word of God has the authority to gain, to gain entrance into the kingdom of God. But by its authority, it is also polarizing and dividing as the truth of God's word that we have been given to herald in this world is the aroma of life to those who choose it and the stench of death to those who reject it. And it is in this fulfillment of the call and the purpose of our lives and in the proclaiming of the authority of God's word without apology that we see the ultimate expression of the kingdom that is to come. With Christ as the head and us ruling with him, there will come a time, Philippians 2 tells us, that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. In the coming of Jesus, the fulfillment of his kingdom will be accomplished, and we, those who have been faithful to the end, those who conquer, Jesus says, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered. And sat down with my father on his throne, as we read in Revelation 3.21. But until that time, we are to exercise the God-given authority that we have received and faithfully pursue him. Until he calls us home. Until we see him bursting through the clouds. The other side of this is that we can declare the truth about Jesus' kingship fairly easily. We love to sing about it as we praise him. And I would hazard a guess that all of us love to hear about the authority that we have been given, but do we truly realize what this means? Elmer Townsend, writing about this topic in Theology for Today, said that one of the unique differences between the Christians of the New Testament and those of today is their attitude toward their relation with Christ. They saw him as supreme ruler and themselves as slaves in comparison. 
Perhaps if we had similar biblical convictions today, we would see similar biblical results. The reality of God-given authority is that God has established his way of doing things as detailed in his word, and we are called to submit to that. So if you're a child in the room, you are under the authority of your parents as God has set that up. And he has called you to submit to that. There are five parents. If you get a paycheck, you are under the authority of your employer as God has set that up and has called you to submit to it. If you are a citizen of this country, in this province, in this city, God has established the authority of your government and he has called you to submit to that. You are part of a church. You are under the authority of a plurality of elders and are called to submit to that as God has established it. Because you see, when you rebel against the God-ordained human authorities, you rebel against God himself. And we want and we might pray for God to do something awesome in our families, in our schools, in our churches, in our neighborhoods. But are we truly willing to submit to his supreme kingship in order for that to happen? Are we too consumed with the authority that we have been granted to serve him with. I often find myself running around and working hard to protect the little kingdom that I've made for myself. Instead of pursuing the kingdom of the one who saved me. Kingdom that's so much greater than any that I could establish by my working harder or stressing over or anxiously protecting. It is only when we fully submit to him and his purpose that we can find ourselves in a position to serve with the God-given authority that we've been granted. See, the crisis of the Christ in his purpose has great and glorious implications for us. The purpose of the Christ was to come as a prophet, priest, and king in order to save us from the distanced, desolate, and desperate state that we were in because of our sin. And the joy of our salvation, that we have an opportunity to bring other people into the saving knowledge of your and my Jesus by living out the same purpose that he came to this earth with. While we serve here and now sharing in the purpose for which Christ came, we do so with the promise of what is to come for us. With the hope that one day our roles as prophets, priests, and kings with Jesus will be perfectly realized. When we get to do nothing but declare truth about our God and his world as we bask in his glorious presence. 
we'll be able to offer the sacrifice of praise to him for all of eternity. And when we'll, as Revelation 22 says, see his face, and his name will be written on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light. And here it is. They shall reign forever and ever. Make it so and come soon, Christ Jesus. Amen? Let me pray for us. Almighty, holy, and matchless God, we bow before you in this moment before the truth of your word and recognize, Lord, that you have called us to something. Thank you for the glorious plan of salvation and redemption that you made possible to us through your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you, Jesus, for your obedience and commitment to the purposes for which you were sent, which made all of this available. And we recognize that this costs us something. So for each one here, Father, I pray that you would be moving by your spirit. Bring into account all areas of our lives where we continuing to reign on the throne. Would you forgive us, Lord, for pursuing our own purposes or our own glory? I pray for those who are here, who are tuning in online or who are in this room who don't know you, who are continuing to live in rebellion, running from you. God, would you call them to yourself this morning and would they respond in faith, recognizing what was done for them? They turn to you and live for your glory and purposes, Lord. Pray for those of us here who are straying away. We love you. You've changed us, but some areas of our lives that aren't in step with you. Challenge and change us by your spirit, we pray, Lord, today. For each of us, God, teach and instruct. For those who are discouraged and beaten down in the midst of crises, filled with sorrow, encourage and build up. God, we long to see your kingdom come in this world as it will come for all of eternity. So find us, Lord, ready and faithful. And use us in whatever way you see fit for your glory. As we look to the day when this will all be perfectly fulfilled. Thank you, Father, for this time. We pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen.